Welcome to the Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedekes. And now get ready to think. All right. Um, welcome back to another episode of Table Talk Online from the Christian Worldview Project. My name is Jordan, once again, your host, and we do this primarily and ultimately for the glory of God by presenting the Christian worldview in order to provide a biblical foundation for the defense of the Christian faith. This ministry is under the oversight of Salitran Covenant Bible Church, a local church in the city of Dasmarinas, Cavite, here in the Philippines, under the care of Pastor Jeremiah Hangad, and we do adhere to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. And for those who are watching, if you haven't subscribed to the channel, The Christian Worldview Project, please do so and hit that notification bell so you don't miss any future content. And um, let me welcome our guest for tonight. So here with me is uh, our speaker... Uh, for tonight is a Christian podcaster also, and he has done dialogues with atheists too. Uh, please welcome from Think Institute, uh, Brother Joel Sedicase. Uh, did I pronounce your name correctly? Yes, incredibly yes. <laughs> All right, so would you, mind, would you mind introducing yourself before we get started? All right, so my name is Joel Sedicase, mm-hmm. and I am the founder and lead teacher of a ministry called the Think Institute. And we mm-hmm. are under the umbrella of an organization known as Crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, Crew is a global missions organization that started out as a college ministry in California. And today it has branched out into all different kinds uh, of ministries, touching many aspects of society. The one that we work with directly is called church movements. So mm-hmm. what does all this mean? It means that through the Think Institute, uh, we've got uh, three different layers of ministry. We've got, uh, we've, we do a podcast and a website that aims to equip the global church to, mm-hmm. you know, we believe that no Christian should ever get caught flat-footed when asked to explain share or defend what and why we believe and Mm -hmm. so we create resources for the global church but then um the real meat and potatoes the uh, the the bread and butter of our ministry that's an american colloquialism uh the 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 heart and soul of what we do is we partner with local churches to help to help them equip their people to connect people to jesus raise up missional leaders Mm -hmm. explain share and defend the biblical worldview and then Mm -hmm. along with both of those um, levels of ministry. We also have a discipleship cohort called the Hammer and Anvil Society, where Mm. I take a group of guys, a small cohort of guys, through training in the philosophical and theological aspects of the biblical worldview. And then we go over training on how to make a a strategic impact for the kingdom of Jesus Christ in the cities in which they live. So that's kind of a mouthful. Basically, you can say, uh, I'm, I'm here to glorify Jesus and equip his people. Yep. And, uh, you have a book, right? Uh, that's uh, catechism or, or uh, catechids. Yeah, catechids. That's so, right. uh, yeah, C- can you tell us uh, about that particular book? Sure. So, catechids was a project that I started for my own kids several years ago, mm-hmm. and it was 
originally designed just to be a primer for my own children to teach them the basics of the Christian faith and mm-hmm. a catechism for those who did not grow up Catholic or in a more liturgical tradition mm-hmm. is a series of questions and answers mm-hmm. that lay out the the groundwork of your religion. Mm-hmm. And so if you're Catholic, the Catholic catechism is going to teach you the basics of the Roman Catholic theology. If you are uh, Presbyterian, your your catechism will do the same. But yep. what I wanted to do was I wanted to create one that was more in line with the theology that I held to. Mm-hmm. And while there were some very good ones out there, there was nothing that quite fit the theology that I wanted to teach my children. And so I uh-huh. I drew on the great Reformation catechisms and developed my own. I ended up calling it the New Covenant Catechism for Little Ones. And uh, we shortened that to Catechids on the advice of, of some other friends that I have out in California. And, uh, and you know, so far the response has been probably modest, very modest mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things, but it's been pretty cool to hear how other churches and Christians have been blessed and it's been translated into Spanish and Romanian now. So it's in three different languages and uh, wow. it's just, it's been a lot of fun to, to see the impact of that. <laughs> Praise God for that. And uh, yeah. it's good to, it's good to see you. And uh, thank you so much for accepting my invitation. So, and uh despite of the the busy schedule of course and uh uh you as a podcaster having uh, interviews such and such so uh, for those who are watching our topic tonight is all about uh morality and apologetics how is morality related to apologetics and how do we answer non-christians non-christian objections regarding morality from a biblical perspective brother joel will be helping us out tonight and uh uh what is uh how how about your journey in the apologet in apologetics uh brother joel uh when did you start learning uh, apologetics by the way you know that is a really good question i'm not actually sure here's what i do know i know that <laughs> i know that's that, interesting <laughs> yeah well it's sort of it's sort of been baked into my experience since i was a little kid i remember mm-hmm. my dad would always tell me when i was a kid He'd say, Joel, when you get older, your teachers are going to teach you about evolution. And he explained to me about evolution. And what he said was, what you need to do is when that question comes up on the test, you need to give the right answer, but then you need to be ready to write in a response below the question. This is what I'm supposed to say, but here's what I actually believe. And Mm -hmm. so as a child, I was already learning to delineate the teaching of the world and the teaching of scripture. Mm-hmm. And as I as I grew, the desire to do that grew even stronger. Uh, I remember when I was in high school, I would hop on to these uh, um, Roman Catholic forums online. And uh, I, nowadays we would call what I did trolling. I'm not proud of that. <laughs> but yeah. uh, I would get on and, and uh, seek to debate with uh, the other posters on what the Bible actually teaches about Mary, about mm-hmm. uh, salvation, about Jesus and who he is. And, and, but, but really, when I really started getting into apologetics, where things really started to change for me was in 2012, I started a blog called Don't Forget to Think. And mm-hmm. it was at that time that I sort of coalesced my, um, my teaching and my learning into some uh, systemized 
blog posts where I had to actually articulate my views on different things. And mm-hmm. I had been in seminary for about a, a year, a couple of semesters at that point. Mm-hmm. And I had a, a class at, in my seminary that uh, it was an, it was an apologetics class. And then I had an evangelism class as well that really just lit something in me, lit a fire in me that really gave me a strong desire, not only to articulate the gospel, but also to defend it against attacks. And mm-hmm. so I started studying as much as I could different worldviews. Um, I really got into defense against uh, what was then known as the new atheism. Uh, mm-hmm. by, now, by now, it's sort of the stale atheism, but, uh, but then it was new. And, you know, the, the teaching of Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and, and all of their followers online and, uh, and really discovered presuppositional or, uh, it, you know, that goes by different names, but really presuppositional yeah. apologetics in about 2015, about five mm. years ago. And, um, and as soon as I learned what it was, I started studying that and saw that it was a more biblical approach. And that's mm-hmm. been my approach ever since. Although I still love evidence. I still love philosophy. I yeah. have a degree in philosophy of religion. So um, I love philosophy, but mm-hmm. I would say the philosophy and morality and epistemology and, and uh, all the ologies ultimately have their final grounding in the God that we are all brought into this world knowing that he exists. Yep. Praise God for that. So when did you learn Seitzenberg and Kate, by the way? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Is he one of your, uh, what what do you call that, influences uh, in regard to how you answer questions, how you think, so on and so forth? So when I was... I was a youth pastor. This is 2014, so mm-hmm. about 60 years ago. I I don't remember exactly how I was referred to his videos online, but I started watching them. And the, he has a film that came out around that time called How to Answer the Fool. Mm-hmm. And I, I watched it, and I was absolutely floored. And this was at a time I was... I was teaching my students as a youth pastor, I was teaching my students how to explain and defend their faith. And mm-hmm. we had a winter retreat that uh, that we went on every year. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't the main speaker, but I was one of the breakout speakers. And so in our breakout session, I titled my speech, um, let's see, how to, how to overcome every argument against God or something like that. I mean, I wanted it to be the strongest possible, uh, you know, title. So I gave a talk that was really just, it was almost cut and pasted from size film, how to answer the fool. And mm-hmm. I had students coming up to me afterwards saying, I've never felt more empowered to defend my faith. I did. I, you know, I never realized I could do this. And, and, and it felt so good as a teacher and as a pastor, to equip my people, to equip really, not my, not my people, my students, but Christ's people, mm-hmm. to take such a bold and unassailable stance on the biblical worldview. Mm-hmm. And so now since that time, I've studied, you know, uh, I've gone back and seen who's influenced Saiten Brugenkate. So I've studied uh, Oliphant and uh, and John Frame mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Cornelius Van Til. And, and then even Francis Schaefer and, and other guys from different streams. But, yeah. but 
that's uh, but Sai will always have a special place in my own development as an apologist. <laughs> Me too. The, you you as well. Okay, so over the last several weeks, I've been really getting to know him in conversation. That's one of the beautiful things about the internet, mm-hmm. and uh, and I would say he's he's become a friend over the last several weeks as well, which is pretty cool. Yeah, because uh, I actually uh, uh, saw his post regarding your uh, dialogue with uh, your friendly neighborhood atheist. The very reason why I actually invited you since uh, I saw the video and uh, you're talking about morality. And uh, I'm actually praying uh, who will be the right speaker for this particular topic. And uh, I think and when you couldn't find him, you <laughs> called me. I yeah, thanks so much for that. And uh, uh, after watching your video uh, regarding your dialogue with friendly neighborhood atheist uh, regarding morality, and uh, actually, uh, uh, I said, uh, I tell myself, I think this this is the answer to my prayer, and uh, I really need to, you know, have a if not the perfect, at least suited for this particular uh, topic. All right. So much for that getting to know uh, part, Let, let's talk about uh, our topic tonight. So from a biblical perspective, uh, Brother Joel, what is morality? Yeah, well, that's really the question mm-hmm. because, and I like how you said from a biblical perspective. So I am a Christian. I believe in the triune God of Scripture, and I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Mm-hmm. I believe in, in the full inspiration of all 66 books of the Bible, and that Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice, death, burial, and resurrection mm-hmm. is the defining moment, not only in Scripture, but in all of human history. Mm-hmm. And so when you ask a question like, what is morality?, uh, I have to find my ultimate answer in the Lord, in God, but ultimately in how God has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. And so morality has, well, depending on who you talk to, um, I'm, I answer as a Christian, but depending on who you talk to, there are many different definitions. And yeah. really what it boils down to is there's really only two answers, is morality is that which accords with the moral goodness of God's nature or morality is arbitrary and boils down to man's preference. So there can only be one God. There can only be one on the throne of the mm-hmm. universe and on in the heart of each and every one of us. It's either going to be man or it's going to be God. Mm-hmm. Now, you and I would both agree as believers, there's only one correct answer to that question and that is... Yeah. God. And so the 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 question of um of morality really comes down to what is right. You know, what what is right to to believe? How is it right to conduct ourselves? Mm-hmm. What is what is the goal for our conduct? What is the standard by which we judge our conduct? And then what is the proper motivation that drives us toward the, the way we comport ourselves, the way we behave in yeah. life. And as a Christian, the goal, the standard, and the motive for our conduct, our morality, ultimately boils down to that which accords with the perfect nature and will 
of, of God. So there, there are really three different questions that we have to ask when we're talking about morality. Mm-hmm. And that is, um, what is right and wrong? Why are we obligated to do what is right? And then how do we know what is right? And uh-huh. so I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to unpack those for you, however you want to take the conversation. But the, the big idea that I like to talk about when we're talking about morality is this. God's morality, true morality, is neither an arbitrary decree, meaning mm-hmm. when God declares what is right, and when we as Christians agree with that, we're not adhering to some standard that God just made up out of whole cloth. Yeah. He just he just made it up arbitrarily and it, and it could have been otherwise. Mm-hmm. Nor is it a standard that is impersonal and above God mm-hmm. such that God himself is sort of, you know, opening up his dictionary or his his moral encyclopedia <laughs> trying to figure out what's right and wrong as mm-hmm. if the book was written by somebody else, but rather th- what the Bible teaches is be holy because I am holy in First Peter one sixteen. So mm-hmm. morality is again. I, I feel like I'm beating a dead horse, but I want to just articulate this really clearly. Yeah. Morality is that which comports with the perfect goodness of God's nature. All right. And uh, uh, what is the? Uh, what do you think is the importance of having a restored view of morality from a biblical perspective? You know. Your question kind of gave it away there because you said the word restored. Yeah. And the importance of having a restored view of morality is this. Our view of morality is definitionally broken. Mm-hmm. Our, our view of morality, and I don't just mean you and me, Jordan, although ours certainly is to, to uh, even as believers, even yeah. to this day it is. We don't have a perfect morality. Yeah. Uh, Jesus himself said there is none good but God. Mm-hmm. But... Humanity in general is very broken. And mm-hmm. I don't just, it, we're not just broken like a, a clay pot that's been dropped on the ground. We're broken like someone with a deep heart condition. We're broken, we're broken like, um, like an animal who has uh, been abused and now lashes out at its owners, even its benevolent owners mm-hmm. uh, who, who only want to take care of it. You know, think about a dog that's been, that's been beaten, that's been raised to, to fight. If you bring that dog into your home, it's going to try to bite you. It's going to try to bite your children. It might mm-hmm. not eat healthy. It might, uh, that's really our condition. We have a moral brokenness that is yeah. more than just, um, an accident. It, it has to do with our very, uh, our very nature, our very core. And the reason for that is because although God is good and God created everything good, mm-hmm. um, mankind has been failing since our earliest moments on earth. And so when God created the first man, Adam, in the garden, he gave Adam one command. He said, don't eat the forbidden fruit. Yep. Nothing could have been simpler. But Adam, as you know, did not keep God's commandment. Mm-hmm. Although God warned Adam, the day that you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. Mm-hmm. He ate of it. He listened to Eve, his wife, Rhett, although she wasn't called Eve at that point. She was named Eve afterwards, but we know her as Eve. What mm-hmm. Adam did was he put his own judgment ahead of the revelation of God. And he decided for himself what he was going to do. And and really what he was doing was he was he was elevating himself um, and elevating Eve and elevating the teaching of the serpent above mm-hmm. above God. But really, he was elevating himself because yeah. he was deciding for himself uh, what he would do. So 
Although God promised that Adam would die, and Adam did die spiritually at that moment, in Genesis 3.15, God promised that one of Eve's offspring would destroy the devil, and in the process, he himself would be mortally wounded. So at that moment, that's when God promised that he would restore everything that Adam had just broken. But nevertheless, woe death and sin came to all of Adam's children. And so mm-hmm. you trace the history of mankind through scripture and man, open up the history books uh, and you'll see woe, meaning uh, trouble and great sorrow and death and sin spreading out to all of humanity. And, and so what happens is in scripture, God continually gives a developing moral, moral code to humanity. Mm-hmm. And what we see is Humanity, because we are broken, because we are flawed, because we are immoral, and by by nature, haters of God, we disobey God's command. So the next moral code God gave was to Noah in Genesis 9. He allowed the eating of meat. He forbade the eating of meat that had the lifeblood still in it. He prohibited murder. Uh, gave uh, He instituted capital punishment. If you murder someone, you have to be killed. And then mm-hmm. he gave a mandate for human reproduction. After this, though, God began to establish a special relationship with one particular ethnic line that Mm -hmm. descended from Noah. And that was the line of Abraham, the Hebrew Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. Well, the the culmination of God's moral system that he gave to the Hebrew people is given in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It's, Mm -hmm. It's the law of Moses. And at the heart of the law of Moses is the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the, it was not that was not all of the law, but that was that was the sort of the um, the baseline moral guidelines for Israel. Yep. Now, um, Israel, as you know, was never going to live up even to that baseline, and so God instituted a system of sacrifice and a system mm-hmm. of of priesthood that would allow Israel to temporarily atone for sin. And to atone really means it comes from the Hebrew uh, kapur, which mm-hmm. means to cover. And um, although Israel's sins would be temporarily covered, they would never be fully atoned for under that system. And so the whole system itself reminded Israel how holy God was, how sinful they were, how sinful mankind is, and how badly they needed a savior. And so the law and the prophets continued on until John the Baptist. And John the Baptist began to call Israel to repentance. And Mm -hmm. you know what? Israel was ready to hear that message of repentance. What took place between the end of the old covenant era, when when, um, the revelation of the law and the prophets ceased, to the time of John the Baptist. There Mm -hmm. was a period of 400 years of silence. During that time, something really fascinating happened. Mm -hmm. This is really, really cool. During, during that time, Israel was exiled. Uh, Judah was, ex- the, the northern kingdom of Israel was exiled. Israel had mm-hmm. been divided up into two nations, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And Judah was exiled, brought off into captivity by Babylon mm-hmm. and dispersed throughout the Babylonian empire. Well, Babylon was overtaken by the Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persian empire was overtaken by the Greeks. The Greeks were overtaken by the Romans. And by the time John the Baptist comes on the scene, the Romans were in power and the the Jewish people had been brought 
into their homeland again. We read about that in the book of Daniel. But there were still many Jews dispersed throughout the world. And what's real? this is why I say this is really cool, because during that period of silence, God was spreading Hebrew morality, Jewish morality around the world. Now, how do we know this? This is, this is pretty cool. Um, look what happened during that 400 years of silence. Okay. The, um, the extent of the Medo-Persian Empire that, uh, and, and really that, that whole empire. Um, okay. The king of the Medo-Persians was Darius. He ruled, he was born in 550 BC. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is going to sound like a rabbit trail, but I promise we're going somewhere with this. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, He issued the decree that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who are living in all the land, in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. That's the Hebrew God. Well, Mm -hmm. the western end of that empire was Greece, and the eastern end was India. Buddhism was founded in Israel in the low 500 BC. Confucius uh, in China wrote around 500 BC. Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics was written in 350 BC. Mm-hmm. All of these teachings represent a great leap forward, um, morally speaking, over against the ancient pagan systems. So, my former pastor, Derek Webster, has proposed that what you're seeing here is you're seeing the effects of the Hebrew teaching and the, the decrees of um, Darius that everyone must bow before the God of Israel. You're seeing the effect of that spreading throughout the ancient world to the extent that um, the ground was laid for great moral advancements in the world. So by the time John the Baptist comes... The world itself had progressed significantly, morally speaking. But mm-hmm. here's the amazing thing that we see. Although the teaching of morality had advanced, the heart condition of mankind remained incredibly broken. Mm-hmm. So what we, what we, what we learn from looking at history and, and, um, by the time John the Baptist comes back, comes onto the scene is that while humanity is capable of advancing morally in a, in a societal sense, there is something still deeply flawed and broken in our, in our hearts. Mm -hmm. And no amount of teaching can ever fix that. No amount of moral law or ethical law can ever fix that. We remain broken. We need a savior. So by the time John the Baptist comes on the scene, he is calling Israel all Israel to repent. All of Jerusalem and Israel were coming out to him. They're repenting. They're being baptized in the Jordan River. And now the scene is set for the Messiah to come. And the Messiah originally comes just to the people of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel are, are really Judah and Benjamin, who was all that was left. But there were, there were other remnants of other tribes, it seems, as well in Israel. But Jesus chooses 12 disciples for himself. Jesus teaches not only does Jesus teach a deepened and broadened moral law in the in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, but he also then commissions his apostles, his 12 disciples, to go out into the world and to spread not just a new moral law, although he does give them a new moral law, mm-hmm. but he also brings them, sends them out with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel is what really transforms us. The gospel is that Jesus Christ, the God-man, died for sinners for our sins, according to the scriptures, he was buried, he rose again according to the scriptures, and that he now 
has returned to heaven and reigns over all creation, heaven and earth. He has all authority. And that by believing in him, we receive new life and we are born again. And now you're cleansed and justified from everything from which you could not be cleansed and justified under the old system. Mm -hmm. So at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is given and it's given to the 12 disciples who then preached the gospel to the uh, all the Jewish people who were there in town in Jerusalem who had come from all the extent of that empire to which the, the moral teachings had spread. They go back and preach the gospel and, and the whole world, which had been prepared to receive the gospel at just the right time, now receives the gospel and the church grows, the gospel spreads. And now, look at this, Jordan. Mm-hmm. You and I are start speaking from the United States and the Philippines, which would have been yeah. considered the <laughs> ends of the earth. But here we are. Our hearts have been changed. Our our uh, feet are walking with the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. What the heck mm-hmm. are we doing? We, we Gentiles doing worshiping the God of the Hebrews, but our hearts mm-hmm. have been changed. We're following the law of Christ. Um, we have the, God's Holy Spirit within us. We're not perfect, but we've mm-hmm. been forgiven. We've been justified. God has given us a, a he's he's made us born again he's mm-hmm. given us new life adopted us into his family and sent us out to do good works which he prepared for us in advance to do so not only not only must we have our brokenness fixed not only not only do we need a new moral understanding but we need to be changed from the inside out and that's exactly what happens through the gospel of Jesus Christ and that is the bedrock understanding that we as apologists must must take into our conversations with whether it's atheists or mm-hmm. Muslims or, or anybody who believes differently than what the Bible teaches. Yeah, thank you so much for laying that uh, foundation and also the importance of having a restored view of morality apart from Christ. Actually, uh, our more our distorted view of morality will will always uh, continue without uh, the Holy Spirit changing our hearts. Uh, we still have a distorted view of morality and. Uh, as we face every unbeliever uh, in the uh, outside world, uh, there is this hope that we have that uh, if we preach the gospel to them, if we proclaim the truth, there is hope in Christ that you know the gospel has the power to actually save souls. So, yeah, thank you so much for that very uh, enlightening (laughs) foundation of what it is to have a restored view of uh, morality. And, of course, uh, before our morality was actually restored, uh, outside of uh, the, the restored morality that we have right now, is the distorted morality and uh, part of that is the moral subjectivism so what do you think is the problem if we have a subjective view of morality or does it follow if we have a subjective view of morality it means that we have a relative view of morality yeah, relativism and subjectivism with regard to morality is rampant, it's widespread, mm-hmm. it is it is really it's really the end result of a line of thinking that begins with man as the measure of all things. Mm-hmm. And 
unfortunately, it's the inevitable consequence of a life that rejects God from the outset. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, as you mentioned, I've gotten into dialogues and debates with non-Christians. Yeah. And, you know, what they will what they will often do is they'll try to put forward some standard of morality that we can both agree on. Mm-hmm. For example, human well-being. Okay. Human well-being or human flourishing or something like that. Yeah. Ultimately, though, w- without a universal standard, a standard that is objective, that is immaterial, that is universal, so mm-hmm. it applies to everyone at all times and all locations. It's just as true for you in the Philistine, Philippines as it is for me in yeah. the United States. The, um, without that, really what we're left with is preference. Mm-hmm. So what what happens is one person might might say, well, I believe that human flourishing or human well-being is the ultimate standard of morality. So what what uh, what goes in favor of what you know what promotes human flourishing is good, and what is deleterious to human flourishing is bad or evil. Well, the nat- the most natural question to ask right after that is, well, how do you know that? Ravi Zacharias has had pointed out. God rest his soul. I mean, another another thinker who's greatly influenced me, although we don't agree on everything. Yeah. <laughs> but he says, he points out that it's really a myth to say that all the religions of the world teach that we all must live together in, in harmony. Mm-hmm. And Francis Schaeffer, another thinker who's greatly influenced me, has pointed out that there are many in this world who think they would get along much better without you in it. Without you in the world. And so how are we to differentiate between those who say human flourishing is important and that means we must be kind to everyone and those who say human flourishing is important and and the best way for us to, the best way for we humans to flourish is to get rid of all you subhuman people. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is the logic behind the Holocaust in Germany. This was the logic behind uh, the, the the killing fields of Pol Pot. This is the logic behind the um, the, um, the 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 march of communism in China and in Soviet Russia. How are we to determine what's right and wrong when each of us subjectively determines right and wrong for ourselves? And why should human flourishing be an objective standard? So ultimately, you're left with either radical subjectivism. You know, mm-hmm. Jordan, you determine what's right for you. Yeah. I determine what's right for me. And let's just kind of hope that both of us agree to get along. Yeah. But if you decide that your system of morality and your system of, of human well-being means you've got to eradicate me and my kind from the earth, well, without an objective standard to judge between the two of us, mm-hmm. I'm left with either being exterminated or I have to try to now exterminate you or defend myself. And anyone can see that a world in which that line of thinking, that line of moral reasoning prevails is a world that quickly devolves into a a situation we don't want. Now, that doesn't mean that it's right or wrong, but -hmm. it does mean that uh, it's not an optimal, you know, uh, it it doesn't lead to human flourishing. Yeah. You know, in in any objective sense. And so um, the other possible scenario is we're left with just sort of a, a democratized view of morality. Well, mm-hmm. you know, get get 10 people into a room and whatever we all decide is moral, that's what we're going to go with. 
The problem is if nine people decide to eradicate or exploit or plunder the 10th person, well, by definition, that 10th person can't object because morality has spoken. And that's the only standard that we have. Mm -hmm. So just from human experience, we can see we need an objective standard. Mm -hmm. Um, The, the, uh, the reality of it is we, we have an objective standard. The, mm-hmm. That objective standard is God's perfect, holy nature. And it's only by adhering to his nature and we, we come to know his nature through the way that he's revealed it. I'll be happy to talk about that as well. But it's yeah. only by adhering to God's perfect, holy nature that we can be good, do good, but also it's what's best for society. It's, it's a funny thing that if you follow... The creator, it turns out creation functions a lot better um, according to his plan. You know, who would have thought that that would be the case? But yeah. of course it is the case. Right. And uh, I actually had a conversation uh, last night regarding uh, moral subjectivism. Uh, I actually asked him if, uh, what do you mean by moral subjectivism? And uh, is it is it the same as moral preference? He actually uh, said yes. And... Uh, I asked him, so uh, if we have two preferences, let's say, for example, my preference is uh, rape is uh, raping is good. And uh, based on your preference, raping is bad. If 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 we are going to know the nature of our preferences, which from our two preferences are right. So basically, uh, he he will answer that of course it is wrong to rape. Then why is that wrong? He says that uh, it harms someone. Uh, well, you are appealing to the consequence, but I'm arguing for the nature of the preference. You see, if 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 that really is the case, if it all boils down to preference, then we really can't answer those questions, right? Yeah, that that's exactly right. And the the problem with that is not only can we not answer those questions, but if morality does boil down to preference, mm-hmm. then what is preferred is definitionally right. Mm-hmm. So when the Japanese soldiers, if you've ever read about the rape of Nanking, mm-hmm. what what the Japanese soldiers did in Nanking or Nanjing during World War II, which I, I don't even want to repeat. Uh, right now, it's 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 shameful and horrific to even talk about it. But if morality is subjective, that was right. That was right. Now, the whole thing can be reduced to sub- to absurdity by by simply asking the question: How do you know? Or yeah. by what by what standard? And and the minute somebody says, "Well, you know, by my own standard," well, then I can just say, "Well, you know, my personal standard is uh, to never listen to you." You know, like, okay, so, so now if it really is radically subjective like that, well, then now you're, you, my, my conversation partner, now you're objectively wrong. Yeah. But by the same standard, you are objectively right and objectively wrong. So that's self-referentially incoherent. That's Mm self-contradictory. And, and now we've thrown logic out the window. And so, you know, now we can't know anything at all. Yeah. Radical subjectivism in terms of morality ends up undercutting every other area of knowledge and thought. So what we know and what we are to do are so are so um, 
intricately intertwined that you can't separate them. And and this is why I, I when I started out by saying uh, there's three different components, three questions that we need to ask. Um, I think I really think these are very important. What yeah. is right and wrong? So that's a question of metaphysics, because now you're grounding morality in the nature of reality itself. What is right and wrong? And so as Christians, we say God is ultimately real. God is prime reality. Mm-hmm. And so we would we ground our morality in him. What is right and wrong? But also, you know, why are we obligated to do what is right? And, you know, that's really, that's really a question of anthropology. What does it mean to be human? And teleology, what is the meaning of life? What does yeah. it mean to be human? And why are we created in the first place? Mm-hmm. Um, and then how do we know? That's the question of epistemology. How do we actually know what is right and wrong? These questions are so intricately intertwined, you can't separate them. Yeah. Um, how we know right from wrong is tied up with what it means to be a moral agent in the first place. Mm-hmm. And if all you're gonna, if you're just gonna say, well, it's radically subjective, it just depends on my moral preference, that's the same as saying there is no meaning. There's just, mm-hmm. because, uh, because there are as many standards as there are persons in the world, and if, if we can just eliminate all the people who disagree with us, that standard goes away. But then if yeah. we if we are eliminated, then our standard goes away. Um, that's that's the same as saying there really is no standard. All we all we have is preference. Because who are we? We might as well have just not. Uh, we might just as well just as well have not existed. Mm-hmm. In which case there would be no standard. So if if our existence in the first place is an accident, then all the standards that exist are accidental and that's really not a standard at all that's you know that's uh like trying to judge between the morality of one wave versus another or you know one uh the flickering light of one star versus another star Mm -hmm. uh you know or or, you know one temperature you know the the winter versus summer which one of those is morally right (laughs) you know neither one there is that's not a two flavor two flavor of ice cream two flavors of ice cream exactly (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I like Rocky Road. You know, you you like Trace Leches. You know, you're wrong. Yeah. I'm right. Who who knows? Yeah, uh, am I being a cult for believing that vanilla is uh, my favorite? <laughs> <laughs> I do prefer vanilla to chocolate. But once you start throwing marshmallows and nuts in there, it's game over for me. I'll go with Rocky Road all day. Uh, you're a heresy for me. You're, you're a heretic for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was nice talking with you, Jordan. I guess I'll go. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's move on. Uh, how about this? How do you challenge a moral subjectivist? How do you challenge a moral subjectivist? First of all, <clears throat> first of all, the way you do it. Mm-hmm. Now, challenging a moral subjectivist and convincing a moral subjectivist are two different things. Mm-hmm. Okay, but what what scripture does so masterfully well is scripture reduces the argument that sets itself up uh, against the knowledge of christ to absurdity Mm -hmm. and scripture tells us to do this as well in proverbs 26 4 and 5 and excuse me in proverbs 26 4 and 5 we read do do not answer a fool according to his folly Mm -hmm. lest you become like him yourself Okay, so in other words, uh, well, the, the next verse, which seems to contradict it, says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he become wise in his own yes. eyes. So these two verses warn us against a certain way of responding 
to a moral subjectivist or, or any mm-hmm. unbeliever. Mm-hmm. And they also prescribe a particular response to a moral subjectivist. So here, first the warning. Do not enter into the folly of the moral subjectivist such that you become like a moral subjectivist yourself. Mm-hmm. What you don't want to do is say this. Oh, okay, you disagree with me? Well, then let's enter into neutral territory. I'll mm-hmm. give up my standard mm-hmm. of God's word, and I'll meet you on neutral territory that you'll accept. You know, let's let's come up with some moral standard. You know, we will both say that human flourishing is is important. Okay, or mm-hmm. human well-being. And let's just reason from there. And I'll I'll try to reason you back onto my uh my way of thinking. Well, mm-hmm. right from the beginning, I've already given up the true standard of morality, which is God's heart, God's nature, God's law. Um, shame on me as a follower of Jesus Christ if I give up my standard right from the beginning. Well, then, mm-hmm. okay, well, what do I do then? Because if I can't meet the moral subjectivist on neutral territory, uh, what am I, you know, how, how am I, how am I going to meet him? Well, I answer him according to his folly by showing him the foolishness of his moral subjectivism. And one of the simplest ways of doing that is, is by asking, well, what do you mean by that? Well, so when someone says, well, human well-being is the standard of morality. Okay. You said human well-being. As a Christian, I have, I have an idea of what that means, but I mm-hmm. also have an idea of what it means to be made in the image of God and yeah. why we were, where we're, why we're, we were created. You know, um, Psalm 100 verse three says, essentially all creation is created to glorify God and to praise him, to make a joyful noise to the Lord. Amen. What do you as an unbeliever mean by well-being? What does it mean to be well? And by what standard do you judge what is well-being? Well, they might say, well, do no harm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, harm implies a standard by which we can judge whether or not harm is being done, whether Mm -hmm. something is is detrimental yep. to what is right or and and what is good for a person versus what is you know in accordance with what is right and good for a person mm-hmm. so for example let me give you a scenario there's a man who takes a knife and plunges it into the um abdomen mm-hmm. of a little boy okay is what i just described moral or immoral is it in accordance with human well-being or not? Well, you might say, well, that, that sounds terrible. No, that's yeah. that's definitely not in line with, with well-being. Okay, yep. well, here's mm-hmm. the thing I didn't explain to you. Mm-hmm. That uh, knife that was being plunged into the abdomen of that child was a scalpel. And the child has been anesthetized and is about to receive a heart transplant. And it mm-hmm. turns out that child is my, my little boy, my mm-hmm. five-year-old. And actually, mm-hmm. that, that is exactly what happened on March 30th of this year. My son received a heart transplant. Well, now that changes wow. the whole situation, doesn't it? Yeah. Now we're talking about a surgeon. It's the same action of stabbing the same, the same victim, quote unquote, the same subject, the same object. Everything is the same, but the intent is completely different. The goal is completely different. Um, and you and I would both say, well, I think we would both say that it's it's wrong to murder a child. It's good to give a heart transplant. But why is one good and, and the other bad? Yeah. And and by what standard do we judge between the two? And and the amazing thing that I find, Jordan, is this. Often the moral subjectivist 
is the same one who will say, well, it's wrong to, um, to plunge a knife into a child in order to kill that child. Mm -hmm. But it's perfectly morally acceptable to do that exact same action. If that exact same child was, you know, uh, five years prior in his mother's womb. Mm -hmm. Um, in other words, abortion is perfectly fine. But, uh, you know, murder outside the womb is, is not fine. So I'm, 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 I'm going around a little bit in circles exploring different um, scenarios here. But really, the question we need to ask is, by what standard do we judge what it means to promote well-being and, uh, and human flourishing? Mm-hmm. And our goal is to expose the folly, the foolishness of the moral subjectivist in order not just to leave him or her in a situation in which his his or her worldview has been destroyed, but yeah. then to um, to compare and contrast the biblical worldview, which says, okay, now according to the, the Bible, we are created in the image of God. And the reason why heart surgery is good and murder is wrong is because we are God's image bearers. Mm-hmm. It's wrong to destroy the image of God wrongfully uh, 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 without cause. Mm-hmm. It's right to repair and restore the image bearer of God, which by definition will then mean it's, it's right to do uh, fetal surgery, um, mm-hmm. prenatal surgery on an unborn child. It's wrong to dismember and suction out a child in the womb by performing an abortion. It's, it's wrong to rape. It's right to get married and procreate. Yeah. Um, but these, these, instances of moral morally good or morally bad morally wrong action only makes sense within a biblical worldview and then so step one is expose the folly of the unbelieving position by reducing it to absurdity step Mm -hmm. two is by introducing the biblical worldview and showing them that their very standard of moral well of a human well being or human flourishing mm-hmm. really makes sense within the biblical worldview and doesn't even go far enough because yeah. we're to love our neighbor and to love the Lord our God mm-hmm. and then to, to then commend the gospel and to call them to repent of their foolish moral subjectivism and the rebellion against God and to receive Jesus Christ by faith mm-hmm. and uh, Jesus Christ as not only the ultimate moral lawgiver, but also the one who pays for our arbitrariness, our subjective uh, moral standards. And really, here's the thing, Jordan, our failure to live up to God's standard and our own standard. Mm-hmm. Because my conscience convicts me every day of the sin that I know I'm con- committing. Yeah. And guess what? Unless his conscience is completely seared, the moral subjectivist knows that he's not living up to his own standard either. Exactly. And and his Romans 2 says his own conscience bears witness and his own conflicting thoughts either accuse or excuse him. So there's a subjective nature to morality as well. We all mm-hmm. know that there is such a thing as morality as right and wrong and we all know we don't live up even to our own standard let you know let alone what what we we um we know that god has prescribed for us so i really like to think of it in terms of three different steps yep 
actually uh our brother Sai actually uh had a tweet uh he said to claim that one standard of morality is better than another is to compare it to an absolute standard which cannot be justified without god right. without Without that absolute standard, you cannot say that one standard of morality is better than another, only different. So, right. Here's, here's the incredible thing about saying one standard is better than another. Yeah. It, it presupposes the conclusion before you even start. It's completely circular. If you, mm -hmm. The whole question that we're trying to ask is what is better, what is worse? So mm -hmm. if I say this standard is better than another... I'm already presupposing that there's some standard, there's some system by which I can judge these two standards. But that's the very question we're trying to ask. That's the very question we're trying to answer. What does it mean for something to be better or worse in the first place? Yeah. And 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 you import your own presuppositions into that question. So if you're the judge, well, you've already answered your question. Whatever you think is better is better. If God's the judge, well, that really changes the ballgame. Now I've got to figure out what God wants. Now I've got to figure out what God has commanded for me in my life. But you can't just say which system is better or worse. You're exactly right. All we can say is, well, this is different. And yeah. one's different. <laughs> and and, and uh, who's to say? Who knows? Mm. It's just like uh, what we just uh, discussed uh, a few minutes ago. Uh, two flavors of ice cream. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Uh, have you heard of the uh, Utifro dilemma? And uh, have you yes. tried? Yeah, have you tried uh, solving this problem? I, I actually uh, read uh, Utifro dilemma and uh, uh, look at this and uh, try to analyze this. I didn't see any problem uh, with regard to uh, the Christian worldview. But but what do you think about uh, the Utifro dilemma? How do you answer this? Right. Great question. So the Utifro dilemma is a um is a it's it's a dilemma it's a philosophical problem that was um put forward by plato and essentially what it asks is this do the gods declare something to be right or good mm -hmm. based on some standard that is external to themselves and above themselves mm -hmm. and if so then the gods are not the highest standard of goodness. Mm -hmm. they, there's, there's some standard, and really, we should really be worshiping that standard, not the gods. Mm -hmm. The gods are less than. Yeah. Or do they just declare what is right and good to be right and good based on you know, their own arbitrary whims? Yeah. In, in which case, you know, we might say, hey, murder is wrong now, but it could have been otherwise. Murder could have been the greatest possible moral good. It just depends <laughs> on how the gods were feeling that day. Yeah. So here's what, here's the dilemma with this dilemma. Here's the problem with this dilemma. The dilemma only makes sense in a worldview in which the, the gods are themselves uh, uh, contingent, are themselves not ultimate. Yeah. So the reason the reason this is a problem for Plato, it's not a problem for Christians, yep. but the reason it's a problem for Plato is the ancient Greeks wrestled with the conception of ultimate reality. They knew it had to be personal because here we've got, you know, moral laws imply a moral law giver. 
Mm -hmm. Um, Because when we're talking about morality, we're not just talking about observations of the way things are. We're talking about prescriptions and proscriptions of the way things ought to be and ought not to be. Yeah. And that's very different than just observing something like the speed of light or the temperature of space or the law of gravity. Mm -hmm. You know, gravity accelerates an object at 9.8 meters per second squared in a vacuum. That's just an observation of the way things are. There's nothing... There's nothing morally uh, obligatory about that. Well, you know, you must accelerate at <laughs> 9.8 meters per second squared. Well, you know, it doesn't matter. You must, you must not. You're going to. It's just the way things are. Mm-hmm. Morality is very different. When, it, when we say you shall not murder, we're saying it is wrong to murder. Now, you might still murder, but that's wrong of you to do that. But mm-hmm. now we're talking about something very different than just an observation of the way things are. And the reason this is a challenge for Plato is because when you're talking about the way things are, that's propositional. That's a statement. You shall not murder. That is a, that is, that's a sentence. That's a statement. That's a proposition. That's linguistic in nature. But Mm -hmm. impersonal forces don't speak. They don't give propositions. Temperature does not prescribe anything. Gravity does not say anything. Mm -hmm. Information requires someone inputting that information. Information in my conscience requires that something or someone put that information there. So moral law is different than natural uh, physical law. And that's 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 an important distinction we have to make. Yep. Law of the kind that uh, that we talk about when we talk about moral law implies a lawgiver. So the Greeks had the Greek gods, right? You had, you know, Zeus and Hermes and Athena. All right, so Zeus can tell you what's right and wrong, right? The problem mm-hmm. is this. Zeus is not the highest... Uh, uh, Zeus is not the grounding of morality. Zeus is not ultimate in his being. How do yeah. we know that? Well, because there's Athena and Hera and um, Hades and Poseidon. And and all these different gods are constantly at war with one another. Mm-hmm. And sometimes Zeus wins and sometimes Hades wins. Mm-hmm. Well, neither one of them is ultimate. Um, and not only that, but they certainly don't agree all the time either. Yeah. So if they're going to be the grounding of reality, well, then reality is chaotic and reality is conflicting and reality is often contradictory. Yeah. But morality is not like that. You shall not murder is an absolute and universal standard. Murder is always wrong. Unless, well, hey, maybe it is arbitrary. But we all know murder is not an arbitrary command. Yep. So this is why the Greeks then shuffled back and forth between they had the gods, but then they also had something called fate. And fate was an impersonal force. Uh, it, it was it was the way things are. It was the background noise that um, that just predetermined the way everything was going to turn out. Mm-hmm. And and even by the way, it even guided and determined the way the gods would act. Yep. It was above the gods, and and so you might say, well, all right, so fate. Now that that's our that's our grounding for morality. Here's the problem about fate. Fate is impersonal. Fate cannot give commands. Fate is just the way things are. 
Now we're, again, now we're talking about something more like gravity or temperature or, you know, the behavior of an object in a vacuum or, or um, the bending of, you know, space-time due mm-hmm. to gravity. We're, we're not talking about a moral command. Fate cannot tell you you shall not murder. Fate will just tell you whether or not you will murder. Mm-hmm. And the gods and fate... Um, are not linked in any ontological or metaphysical way. Mm-hmm. Fate is ultimate but impersonal. The gods are personal but not ultimate. Mm-hmm. And so youth, uh, the euthyphro dilemma is like, well, which one of these determines our morality? Yeah. Okay. That's only a problem for the Greek system. It is not a problem for Christians. Why? Because Christians believe that the grounding of our morality is both ultimate, kind of like fate, and personal, kind of like the gods. But there's a perfect unity between the ultimate nature of our standard mm-hmm. and the personal nature of our standard, because mm-hmm. our standard is God. God is ultimate, he's objective, and he's also personal, so he can reveal himself to us, and he can reveal his will to us. Now, Jordan, there's one step further that we need to go to really solve this dilemma. Because mm-hmm. at this point, all I've said is God is ultimate and God is personal. Well, mm-hmm. that that could describe the God of Islam or the yeah. God of, of Judaism. Yeah. But I'm a Christian, and I don't think the God of Islam and the God of Judaism or the God of Jehovah's Witness... Uh, theology can really ground and really answer the Euthyphro's dilemma. So this is why we have to go one step further. Mm-hmm. Because as Christians, we're not just concerned with my own personal conduct. We're concerned with interpersonal conduct as well. Yeah. See, rules like you shall not murder are not just rules for me. They're rules for how I treat you. Mm-hmm. But how could a monistic God, a God that is just self-contained as a monad, a, a, a ultimate oneness mm-hmm. how could a god like that ground ultimately any command having to do with interpersonal relationships because before that god created the world there was no interpersonal relationship there yep. was no rule called you shall not murder there was no rule called you shall love your neighbor as yourself there was just no self. love actually there was no love at all there yeah. was just i there was just me there was just self and so any command about um, how one self interacts with another self mm-hmm. couldn't have arisen until that great self of God created. Well, now that God could have created that world in any particular way, and now rules like you shall not murder actually are contingent. They could have been otherwise, and they are actually arbitrary because they're not rooted in the perfect nature of of god because there is nothing in the perfect nature of that god that governs anything having to do with interpersonal relationships yep relationship now now we're right back with euthyphro's dilemma is Mm -hmm. you shall not murder just arbitrary well no this is where the christian god the, the god that is actually there comes in because we don't believe that god is a monad we don't believe in some sort of bare theism that we can have in common with deism and judaism and islam we -hmm. believe that god is triune he is Mm -hmm. three in one that means before god ever created the world father son and holy spirit were in perfect perichoresis or harmony perfect Mm -hmm. loving relationship with with one another well now 
you've got an ethic, a morality rooted in the nature of prime reality, that is God Mm -hmm. itself, himself, that when God creates, he can now prescribe to us, hey, love, you're, you're made in the image of God. By the way, animals are not. So, so apes don't have to adhere to this, but you humans, you are made in the image of God. So how are you to treat each other? You are to treat each other in an, in a way that is analogous to the way that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always interacted with each other mm-hmm. since before time, since forever. So, Jordan, you and I, just as human beings, we must treat each other with dignity and respect. We must love one another as we love ourselves. Yep. In Christ, here's the amazing thing. In Christ, that command is even more fully realized so that Jesus comes and he says, a new command I give to you, you shall love one another as I have loved you. And you say, well, Jesus, that sounds an awful lot like love your neighbor as yourself. Ah, no, it's deeper because how did Jesus love the church? He actually laid down his life for us. This is why Mm -hmm. Paul says, let each one look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let Mm -hmm. each person think of um, others as more important than yourself. That's mm-hmm. actually an even higher standard than love your neighbor as yourself. So when people say, oh, the golden rule, every culture has it. First of all, no, every culture did not have the golden rule. That is a myth. But yeah. even where the golden rule was approximated, it still pales in comparison to the command that Jesus gives. You shall love one another as Christ has loved us. So how do we solve Euthyphro's dilemma? By turning to the God of Scripture, who is ultimate personal and diverse within himself and as he has revealed himself in scripture as he has revealed himself in history by dying for his enemies to redeem them to save us to bring his enemies into loving relationship with himself man plato euthyphro confucius uh buddha no one can touch that level of morality and so is that arbitrary no not at all is rooted in the very nature and the character of God. Is there a standard above God? No, because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equally ultimate with one another, and the standard the standard is God himself. How do we know that? He's revealed it to us in his word and ultimately at Calvary when Jesus died and uh, when he rose again on the third day. So that's how we solve Euthyphro's dilemma. A little long-winded, probably could have shortened that up for you, but I wanted to make sure I covered all my bases there. Yeah, thank you so much for that, for, you know, uh, the grounding. And, uh, of course, uh, you, you make sure that uh, it really solves the problem of, or the dilemma of the Euthyphro <laughs> dilemma. And uh, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate that. And uh, uh, how about, uh, let's, uh, what do you call that? Let's make a shift. So, what do you think is the advantage of having a presuppositional approach when arguing for objective morality? You know, that's a good question because even if you talk to like a classical apologist, and there are different schools of apologetics. Yep. Classical apologetics, excuse me, deals more with philosophy. Yep. Because of reason, we we believe in God. Evidential apologetics uh, it deals with evidence, as the name implies. You know, here's all the evidence. For example, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Uh, Reformed epistemology says there are some beliefs that are just simply properly basic, 
And one of those beliefs can be Christian theism, although we can lose that belief and therefore we need to turn back to evidence and philosophy or, or reason. Um, but presuppositional apologetics says, unless you start with the presupposition that God exists and not mm -hmm. just any God, but the God who has revealed himself to us in scripture, in the Bible, mm -hmm. you don't get morality, science, reason, evidence. You don't get any of that anyway. Now, when members or adherents of the other schools of thought, of the other methods of apologetics, when mm -hmm. they come around to morality, they end up almost sounding presuppositional anyway. You know, yeah. the, moral, the moral argument given by William Lane Craig, who is a classical apologist, sounds an awful lot like a presuppositional approach. Basically, what he'll say is, look, if there's at least one moral objective truth, then the God of the Bible exists. And he'll, you know, go to something like, you know, if it's wrong all the time everywhere to torture a child for fun, which, mm -hmm. you know, very few people are going to say that that's fine, then there must be an objective universal lawgiver and then he'll reason his way back to God. Yep. That's almost presuppositional. Here's the thing. That line of reasoning is great as long as you're talking to people who are, generally speaking, living in a Christianized society operating from Christian or Christianized presuppositions. But mm -hmm. what do you get when a person says, no, I don't think that's wrong. Torturing children for fun? No problem. Great. Do it. It's, it's actually the, the pinnacle of my morality. That's the great, mm -hmm. in my worldview, that's the greatest moral truth that I have. Well, mm -hmm. Now you're sunk. Now you're sunk. Um, so, so the, the reason presuppositionalism is, is great is because it doesn't waste time appealing to the, uh, the unbelievers flawed and fallible conscience as an ultimate standard. Instead, it exposes the inconsistency within the unbelievers line of thinking because to even have any standard at all presupposes that there is an ultimate standard. To, to even say that there are any ethical obligations at all, mm -hmm. even the obligation, Jordan, even the obligation of saying, follow your heart, <laughs> even the obligation of saying, do what seems best to you. you, you ought to do what seems best to you. Even that moral standard, as shallow as that is, implies that there is some bridge between what is there your moral preference, as you put it earlier, and what ought to be done. You ought to follow your moral preference. You know, it's wrong to not follow your moral preference. Yeah. Well, okay, wrong by what standard? Mm -hmm. And at that point, you can't just say, well, by, by my moral preference, because that's just begging the question in, in a vicious circle. What presuppositionalism does is it exposes the viciousness of that circle, the inconsistency of of basing your moral feelings on your moral feelings, you know, the futility of that. And mm -hmm. then saying, look, what the Bible says is that God is the ultimate standard. God, um, wh what you really want to do is you want to compare systems. This is, this is a presuppositional ap approach to morality. You, you step into the unbelieving worldview for the sake of argument and expose mm -hmm the inconsistency or the uh, the absurdity of it. And then you invite the non-believer for the sake of argument to step into your worldview. This is yep. what Jesus did when he said um, to the uh, the Pharisees, they were accusing him 
of casting out demons by Beelzebul, by, by, the, by, by Satan. Mm-hmm. He said, look, if I'm doing this, okay, by, according to your own worldview, your disciples are casting out demons too. So by your own standard, who, how are they doing that? And now step into my worldview. Um, I'm, you know, I'm destroying the works of Satan, and uh, and I'm 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 uh, I'm preaching, you know, uh, uh, I'm, I'm you know what, Jordan, I'm going to drop that line of thinking because uh, <laughs> I, I don't even uh, let, let me let me step back. I'm going to go too far afield with that. Yeah. Um, what presuppositionalism does is it says, look. The God of the Bible has revealed himself as immaterial, ultimate, universal, knowable, and interpersonal within himself. Mm-hmm. That perfectly comports with morality, that, that with moral laws that have all those same attributes. Mm-hmm. There is nothing in any unbelieving worldview that provides any kind of similar basis. And so the presuppositional approach is superior because it exposes the futility of man's attempts to reason morally apart from God. And it, it perfectly provides the only acceptable alternative, which is the God of the Bible. So when you start with God, you get morality. When you start without God, all you are left with is inconsistency and futility. And that's mm-hmm. what the whole book of Ecclesiastes is talking about. Meaningless, meaningless, says the preacher. Everything under the sun is meaningless. Yeah. Try to try to develop a system starting from creation under the sun, starting from the earthly perspective, and you're done. You're done for. Um, presuppositionalism exposes that. Non-presuppositional methods, because they don't start with God's word, ultimately end up joining the unbeliever in futility and all the unbeliever has to do is say i don't accept your standard and because you've put his moral reasoning at the forefront and you've rejected god's word as the standard you're mm-hmm. sunk you have no way of combating that in in any sort of ultimate sense you're just sort of left appealing to but don't you think it's wrong don't you see that that's wrong and they can say no i don't see that that's wrong and you have no way of overcoming that yep Exactly. And uh, you, you mentioned a while ago regarding what is and what ought. Uh, can you uh, shed us some light about is and ought distinction of morality? Sure. So the Enlightenment thinker, David Hume, mm-hmm. and many since him, have famously debunked the idea that you can get an ought from an is. I I can uh, I I can look at the world, and I can see any number of I can make any number of observations about the way the world is, mm-hmm. including abortion ends a human life, abuse causes pain, stealing uh, money from your company, embezzling causes the bank account of my company to decrease in value. Mm-hmm. But there is nothing in those observations that creates any kind of moral obligation that that um, that entails I ought to act one way or another based on those observations. Mm-hmm. So 
even even the idea of human flourishing or human well-being is not um, is not uh, does not create an obligatory truth. So if I say, well, uh, yeah, I mean, look, all these things. Uh, if you steal from your company, that's bad. Uh, it causes your company to lose money, and it causes your company to, um, you know, it betrays people's trust, and it causes your company to, to go bankrupt. Okay, so what? Yeah. So, I want money. So what? Well, but that's against the law. So change the law. You know. So hey, if I don't get caught. Who cares, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's there's any number of responses you can have to that. But um, as uh, uh, apologist and pastor Jeff Durbin likes to say, so what? There's there's no in order to get from it an observation of what is to a prescription of what ought to be. Mm-hmm. In order to get from description to prescription, you need a principle that connects the two. And Hume debunked the idea that given atheism or given skepticism or, or unbelief, there is any such connective principle. All Literally, all we're left with is preference. And there is, and preference itself is simply an observation of the way things are. Mm-hmm. I observe myself to feel this way at this particular point in time. But Jordan, I'm sure your moral preferences have changed in your life. You know, you probably don't feel the same way about everything uh, mm-hmm. as you did when you were five years old. Yeah. You know, and same with me. When I was five years old, my moral preferences said I I need to take this toy from my sibling and then I need to punch my sibling. You know, I don't feel the same way, Um, partially because my little brother is bigger than me now. So, Mm -hmm. you know, but but also I think my my moral um, sense of, you know, ethics and right and wrong has developed over time. But Unless there's a connecting principle between what is and what ought to be, all I can say is I feel differently. Mm-hmm. And um, and there is no connective principle, no, no unifying principle between what I observe and uh, and and what I even what I observe about my own desires and the way things objectively ought to be, unless you presuppose the God, the triune God who has revealed himself. In scripture, he provides such a connecting principle because he has created both the object and the subject of morality. He has created both the um, uh, the, the the would-be murderer and mm-hmm. the victim of murder. Yep. And he has prescribed ethical obligations for both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, he has prescribed or he has created both the... Um, the, the individual who would love to riot and burn down buildings. And he also created the person who built that building, who the person who owns that building, and even the raw materials to, to build that building in the first place. It's all his. Jesus Christ said, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Uh, the Apostle Paul in his epistle says, in Jesus Christ, all things consist and hold together. So Jesus is the one who holds ultimate authority because he is literally the author. He has authority because he is the author of all creation. And, and, and he's the one holding everything together. So my conduct must be in line with what Jesus wants and mm-hmm. who Jesus is. Um, and in, in Jesus, I get that connecting principle. I do not get that when I take God, when I take the triune God of scripture and the revelation of scripture 
out of the uh, equation. Now, the, the challenge is, here's the, here's the, the hard thing. Because people will say, I don't need God to know what's right and wrong. Yeah. To a certain extent, that's true. Uh, because I have a conscience. I, my con- If I never heard of God, I would still have a conscience in my spirit telling me right and wrong. The problem is, sometimes I hate my conscience. <laughs> very, very often I do what my conscience tells me is wrong. I do what I know to be wrong all the time. Mm-hmm. So how do you... How do you account for that? Why would I do things that I know to be wrong unless, <laughs> yeah, unless there is a standard outside myself telling me that what I'm doing actually is wrong? The yeah. conscience in a fallen world, in a post-Genesis 3 world, the conscience is, uh, is, is an indicator, but my conscience is flawed. I often don't listen to my conscience. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I need, I need someone to redeem me for all the times I don't obey my conscience. And now when I find out about God's perfect law, I find out that, wow, my conscience is um, really only a part of the picture. Because it's not just you shall not murder, it's you shall not even hate your neighbor yep. in your heart. Oof, now I've got a lot more to answer for than even what my conscience was telling me. And so um, you need God to connect what is and what ought. And when you bring God into the picture, you find out what you that, that category of ought is a lot broader, higher and deeper than you ever thought that it was. And so, um, you know, we really need God to sort through these issues. Yep. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. And uh you also uh, mentioned a while ago regarding uh, what happened in the Garden of Eden. Uh, you actually that that was, that was actually uh, our introduction, and uh, common objections being raised in that scene is the problem of evil and suffering. So, because God allowed the fall, therefore there is evil and suffering in the world. So, as an apologist. How do you answer uh, or uh, respond to this kind of objection? Respond to this kind of objection? Yeah, it's it's really a good question, and the the problem is is um, is multifaceted because mm-hmm. on the one hand, there's sort of the philosophical problem problem of evil, like if God is all all knowing. And uh, omnibenevolent, meaning you know all all good and all loving, uh-huh. and he's all powerful. And evil exists. That seems to be an inconsistent set of propositions. Yep. There's also the um, the existential problem of evil, mm-hmm. which says, really, it boils down to how could a good God let this happen to me? Mm-hmm. So there's an appeal to logic, you know. And then there's an appeal to emotion or experience. If yeah. God were really good and powerful, he wouldn't have allowed this to happen. At the heart of the problem of evil is the recognition that what is does not line up to what ought to be. We mm-hmm. do recognize that there is something wrong with the world. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that seems to be an inconsistency given cre- Christian presuppositions, which is that God is good, God is all-knowing, God is loving. Mm-hmm. So how does the Bible answer the problem? Because as a Christian, 
That's what I'm more interested in rather than some philosophical answer that I whip up. It's how does the Bible answer the question? My opinion counts for jack squat. Who cares? But what, is, what does God say about it? Yep. Amen. So the first, the first component of our answer is this. God is God. Mm-hmm. The same Bible that describes God as totally good, totally loving, all-powerful, all-knowing, all those things, also says some other things about God. So we can't isolate God's attributes from one another. God is a perfect unity. And if we're getting our attributes about God from the Scripture, well, then let's go all the way with it. Mm-hmm. Let's not chop up the biblical worldview. One of the things that the Bible says about God is that God is sovereign and that we are not. And more than once in Scripture, God calls out people for challenging him on this. For example, Romans 9.20 says, Who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Look, mm-hmm. we are creation. He's creator. He is able to do anything that he wants, and we don't have the right to question him any more than a clay pot has the right to, to question the potter. Recently, exactly. um, I had a conversation with Saiten Bruggenke, or maybe this was in his conversation with the Friendly Neighborhood Atheist, but he said, if I question God, it's because I'm an idiot. You know, like, <laughs> amen. Uh the Bible says that God is smarter and wiser than we are. Isaiah 55, 9 says that God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. God, in, in who God is, is so far above and beyond us. Here's the thing, Jordan. If he were to even explain himself to us, Yeah. We, it's beyond our comprehension. We wouldn't get it. Not to mention the fact that the Bible says we are sinners. So we've earned spiritual death and physical death. The Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Mm-hmm. Sinners, as rebels against God, deserve punishment and spiritual death. There is no way around this. We deserve hell. So God can very easily look at us for all of our fist shaking at him, and I'm talking about the, the philosophical, I'm not talking about the existential, deep heart cry to God. I'm talking about, how dare you, God? How dare you do this? Yeah. God can look right at us and say, shut up. And uh, theologian John Frame calls this the shut up defense. Mm-hmm. You know, shut up, he explained. <laughs> God, how can you do this? Shut up, he explained. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all the explanation where we are uh, due yeah. who, from an who are you? Mm-hmm. Who are you? All right, that's the first component. Component number two is God works good out of evil. Remember, take the whole biblical witness uh, altogether. The Bible does absolutely recognize the reality and existence of evil, but says mm-hmm. that God is sovereign over it. There is not one scrap of evil that God does not use ultimately for his good purposes. In the book of Genesis 50, 20, we see Joseph telling his his uh, brothers, hey, you sold me into slavery. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Same action, same evil, God meant it for good. In Romans 8, 28 and 29, we see that God We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are Mm -hmm. called according to his purpose. And then it it, it talks more about that. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But endurance 
must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. God uses suffering and pain and evil in our lives to accomplish great good. God has, uh, Greg Bonson says, God has a sufficient moral reason, a morally sufficient reason for allowing evil in our lives. Mm -hmm. But then what about the existential problem of, of evil? How do we handle, look, my in my life, my oldest son experienced a potentially fatal skin infection. My wife had cancer. My son had cancer twice and heart failure and lung, lung uh, disease. Oh, amazing. How do you handle this? Yeah. How do you keep the faith in the midst of, you know, I've... I've Imagine the emotional, uh, you know, uh, struggle. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. How do I keep the faith? Well, it's not it's not because I'm some kind of, you know, um, really, uh, I'm not a, 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 a stoic, hardened in my emotional response so I can just float above everything and say, it doesn't matter to me. I'm not a Buddhist where I've detached myself from all desire, <laughs> you know, nor am I some sort of um, really uh, exceptionally strong individual. Mm-hmm. Rather, God has given me peace in the midst of the tension and the evil and the pain in my life. Mm-hmm. God does not leave his people alone to figure out all these things. And, and nor does he leave us without an encourager. Mm-hmm. In Scripture, the Holy Spirit himself is called the Comforter. John 14, yeah. 16. Yep. Uh, uh, in 2 Corinthians 1, 4, it says God comforts us in all our affliction. And not only that, but, the, but God himself changes our hearts. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old Mm -hmm. is gone. Behold, the new is come. God changes us so that for the Christ follower, the problem of evil is overcome with the trust and the faith that God has given us. It's not something we gin up in ourselves. It's a gift from God. Now, the atheist, skeptic, or unbeliever might not still be convinced. Mm -hmm. Okay? Why is that? Well, first and foremost... Without Christ, without God, we desire to be independent. Mm-hmm. In Romans 1, 18-22, the Apostle Paul says, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth about God. We desire to be independent. Second of all, we have a very limited vantage point. We can't see the good that God is ultimately doing. We can't possibly know what God is up to everywhere and at all times. And we don't know the good that God is going to ultimately bring up, uh, uh, bring to pass. And third of all, existentially, you may have experienced deep pain and hardship that is just so overwhelmingly hurtful in, in your heart that the problem of evil just seems like an undercutter for God's existence or God's good, God, God's goodness. Yeah. So God is speaking then directly to you. The Lord Jesus Christ is speaking directly to you then when he says this, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. So Jesus's answer to you is this, don't philosophically come to me as the highest good, Come to me as the redeemer of your soul, the one who anoints your head with oil, the one who um, who gives you mercy, the one who bandages up your wounds, the good mm-hmm. Samaritan who cares for you. He mm-hmm. loves you 
-hmm. And if you've been sinned against in this world, and we all have, we've all sinned and we've all been sinned against, Jesus extends his hands to you and says, I understand. I know what that's like. I've experienced that too. Let Mm. me um, give you medicine for your illness. Let me give you salve for your wounds. Let me bind up your your, uh, injuries. Now, if there were no God, if there were no God, there is no problem of evil because there's no such thing as evil. All there is is things I don't like in this world. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, there's no meaning to it all anyway society can't be the standard because then if society is the standard then 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 soviet russia was right nazi germany was right Mm -hmm. antebellum united states with chattel slavery was right Mm -hmm. and you can't be the standard either because every time that you have been morally wrong you were actually morally right and there is no opportunity for moral progress in your life there's only change so the problem of evil only makes sense in the biblical worldview where there are ultimate standards of right and wrong good and evil but it's also the same biblical worldview that solves the problem of evil so there's good news if you if you if you hate the problem of evil if you hate the existence of evil in the world the good news is this you can come to jesus and receive not only um not only comfort for the sin that's been done against you, but also mm-hmm. forgiveness for the sins that you've committed against God and against your neighbor, and you can yep. experience new life. So the problem of evil, that's how I answer the problem of evil. Uh, and it depends on who's asking it, where they're coming from, but the Christian worldview covers it from start to finish. Amen. And uh, do you consider this as the strongest argument of an uh, unbelieving worldview, or is there is there... Uh, a stronger argument uh, uh, against the Christian uh, worldview uh, regarding morality or such and such? It's a good question. This is often put forward as the strongest argument. Yep. I think in a sense it is simply because it it really hits so deeply in our souls. Mm -hmm. This could be the hardest one to overcome from an existential level. Mm-hmm. I, I, I really think that the strongest argument is going to be person relative because yeah. they're going to, there are going to be people who say, that's not a, a problem for me. I have no, I have no issue with that. You know, for other, for others, the transmission of scripture down through, um, over the last 2000 years, how do we know the Bible we have is actually uh-huh. the Bible that was written or uh, that I think that could be a very strong argument. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think there's a way to deal with that presuppositionally, historically, yeah. evidentially. I mean, there's, there's, it's not a, it's not a defeater for the Christian worldview. I think yep. it can be a strong argument. Um, mm-hmm. I think, I think that there are other arguments that are raised through critical theory that can be emotionally, rhetorically powerful. You know, uh, Christianity is, is just a power play, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, I think we have to know how to handle all these arguments, but I think that we, we, we can't lose, man, Jordan, if you if you root yourself in the biblical worldview, yeah. there are no strong arguments against it. There aren't. You can overcome any argument yep. that ra- any lofty thing that raises itself up against the knowledge yep. of, of Christ. There are no strong arguments. Yeah, where is the wise, where the debater of this age as God made them foolish, the wisdom and knowledge. Yes. 
Amen. First Corinthians one. Amen. Yeah. So, uh, how, how about this? Uh, how do you respond to arguments like my body, my rules? I think, uh, this argument is also used by the LGBT community. So how do you respond to that? This will be my second to the last question, by the way. <laughs> well, the first question is always, what do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. What do you mean it's your body? Mm -hmm. What is what, what did you're you're claiming some sort of authority and control? Okay, what do you mean by that? What does it mean to have um, autonomy over your body? Mm -hmm. Then the next thing we have to determine is when this is used in in um, pro life versus pro death conversations. Speaking of uh, uh, the unborn child in a mother's womb, what do you mean by my body? Because scientifically speaking, the unborn child is not your body. So, okay, my body, my, you know, my choice, you might say. Mm -hmm. um, let's define what we mean by your body. Second thing is my rules. Well, what do you mean by my rules? Um, does, does that mean you can do whatever you want? Is that really what you mean? You literally believe there is, because by definition, anything that you do in this world, you're doing with your body, especially if you're a materialist and you believe that your body is all that you have. You don't yep. even have a spirit. So even your thinking is done with a, a part of your body, you know, your brain. Mm -hmm. Do you literally think that you are able to do anything that you want? My rules? Because that is a justification for doing anything. Mm -hmm. It's a justification for destroying property. It's a justification for destroying someone else. And you might say, well, no, 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 because they have got autonomy over themselves. Okay, but if I have autonomy over myself, I can do anything that I want. Exactly. And there, there, there is no restriction over what I can do to somebody else because they can say, well, my body, my rules, fine. Then they can do anything they want. They, they're welcome to defend themselves. Yeah. But I'm also welcome to overcome their defense and to kill them. Because, hey, my rules, sorry. Now, if you want to say, no, 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 my, my rules end where their rules begin. All right. What do you mean by that? Where's that dividing line? And mm -hmm. now we're getting into this whole idea of ob an objective standard that governs the morality of my rules versus his rules or her rules. Mm -hmm. And what is that standard? How do we judge? And what if they say, no, my morality does not end where your, where your morality begins. My autonomy does not end where yours begins. In fact, my morality says, I need to eradicate you from the world. Mm -hmm. What do you do now? My body, my rules. I'm in charge. I'm the boss. Well, so that's the first thing is, what do you mean? Second thing mm -hmm. is, how do you know? Second question is, how do you know? And I, I learned these three questions when I was studying to interact with some Mormons. I learned these from uh, my friend Paul Kaiser, mm -hmm. who's a pastor in California. How do you know? Uh, what do you mean? How do you know? How do you know it's your body? How do you know God didn't create you and, and it's his rules? How do you know that? Why well, I, I feel like I, I I feel like it's my rules. Well, okay, you have your feelings ever been wrong? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, how do yeah. you know that? How do you know you don't own? You're not. How do you not? How do you know you're not owned by somebody else? Yep. 
You know, how do you know you're not you're not owned by God? They, they can't actually uh, answer that aside from begging the very question that yeah. you ask them. That's correct. Well, it it seems to me using my body, my because remember, if they're materialists, all they have is their body. They have mm-hmm. their brain. My brain is telling me that it that it belongs to me, along with the rest of my body. Well, so what? Who cares what your brain is telling you? How do you know that, objectively speaking? And then, what are the implications of that? What do you mean? How do you know? What are the implications? Mm-hmm. Imagine a society in which everyone says, "My body, my rules." You could not have law in that society because yeah. law, by definition, says there are right. rules that apply to everyone, including you, that you didn't create. Mm-hmm. Unless you're going to be supreme di- dictator of society, and then what happens when your society butts up against another society with a different set of rules? You yep. hope, I mean, unless you're going to become supreme dictator of the world, you know, this this logic breaks down pretty quick. I think, I think even if you will be the dictator of the world, you will still violate that my rules, my body, because you incorporate your own rules to other people's Correct. rules. That's right. Yeah. Well, right, right. It can only be my body. Yeah. <laughs> it can't be all our bodies, all our rules. You're right. Yeah. Um, and so there's a radical, uh, radical subjectivism there. The, the other thing that I would say is this. Look, you don't want someone else telling you what to do. You, you want, really what it is, is you want to live the way you were created to live. You mm-hmm. want to live the right way. You want, you want to be free. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? Real freedom cannot come from that line of thinking. Yeah. There is a way you were created to live. There is a way that you can be truly free. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. The Bible says if the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed. Because the Bible says that you are a slave to your sin. There's a reason why you don't even live according to your own rules. My body, mm-hmm. my rules. Yeah, right. You don't even obey your own rules. Get serious. I don't obey my own rules. But there's a there's a way you can be truly free from that slavery to living the way you know you're not supposed to live. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ, the one who sets the captives truly free. As a matter of fact, Jesus told a story about a man who breaks into a strong man's house, binds him up, and takes his prisoners and and his his property and brings him out and Mm -hmm. sets him free. Well, you've been imprisoned by a corrupt world, corrupt sin, and a corrupt enemy of your soul named Satan. Mm-hmm. And Jesus Christ is offering you freedom today. If you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, you will be truly free. Let's talk about the kind of freedom that you want. And then you are free to live the way that God has actually created you to live. Body, Amen. mind, and soul. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's end uh, with this question. What is the relationship of morality and the gospel? Okay. God created us originally. Mm-hmm as a species, to Mm -hmm. live morally good. Mankind has always been dependent on God's revelation. God gave Adam his first moral command in the garden. And Adam immediately disobeyed. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we are not neutral. We are broken, rebellious sinners. Mm -hmm. And left to ourselves, the curse of sin will, and the Bible says the wages of sin is death. The curse of sin will inevitably shoot us down the slope, off the cliff, straight into hell. Mm-hmm. And we, we will deserve every minute of the eternal conscious torment that is hell. We are doomed. So God created us good. 
We've sinned, but there is a loophole. There is a, a there there is redemption. There is a rescue, and that re- that rescue comes through Jesus Christ, because the story of human history is the story of man trying to perfect himself. That's what's behind all these empires. That's what's behind all these ideologies and these utopianisms, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Marxism, and uh, even uh, the the desire to import democracy around the world. We are trying to perfect mankind. We can't do it. We will never get there through the imposition of moral law, mm-hmm. man-made moral law. We can't even get there through the through adherence to God-given law because we are sinners. We sin because we're sinners. We're sinners yep. because we sin. There's no yep. escaping our slavery to sin. But Jesus Christ came as the perfect, the the perfect man, the perfect spotless sacrificial lamb. In the old covenant, we, we had to uh, Israel had to sacrifice for sins. And those sacrifices could never actually cover sin for all time. Mm-hmm. Jesus came as the spotless sacrifice. As a man, he can cover a man's sin. As God, he is infinite in nature and he can cover can cover the sins of all his people. And that's exactly what he did when he died on the cross. Amen. So Jesus paid for our immorality and Jesus rescued us from our immorality. The angel told Mary, you should call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. That's what mm-hmm. Jesus does. If you repent of your sins and realize that your righteous deeds are like filthy rags, that by works of the law you will never be justified before God, never be made right and declared righteous before God. Mm-hmm. He is faithful and just. He will forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then guess what? He will empower you to start living in a righteous way, in a good way. So, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I am much more moral in my conduct than I ever could have been apart from Christ. Do I fail? Every day. And I've got a Savior whose sacrifice is big enough to cover my failures, past, Mm -hmm. present, and future. But, man, I wouldn't want to try to live in this world without Him. I really wouldn't. Amen. Yeah. Amen. And I think one of the dangers is that when when having this uh, perfect worldview that we have is that uh, Christians became, you know, uh, when they argue against the non-believer sometimes or oftentimes, most especially those young, restless and reformed, uh, they try to, you know, elevate themselves uh, above because they think they are highly moral than other people and uh as you know as as christians we should be uh careful about those actions our actions uh uh when we engage the outside world so i think that's a great reminder for 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 us amen all right so uh thank you so much for all of your answers thank you so much for all of those you know foundational uh inputs about uh what we should be uh learning about this particular issue and uh, for those who are watching thank you so much for staying up late if you haven't subscribed to the channel please do so and hit that notification bell so you don't miss any future content uh brother joel can we shall we close in prayer love to yep now let's pray father in heaven you are the definition of goodness. And 
although you've revealed yourself to us by your word, God, we fail to live up to your standard every single day. Mm-hmm. Father, if you had left us without a savior, we would have been completely doomed. Mm-hmm. Your word tells us that the wages of sin is death, but God, you didn't leave us in death because at the right time, while we were still weak, while we were yet sinners, you sent Jesus Christ to die for us, the ungodly, the weak, the poor. Father, thank you so much for revealing that truth, the gospel truth to us in your word. And Father, I pray for those listening. I pray, God, I thank you for Jordan and the work that he's doing. And I pray that you would use him and use this podcast, this mm-hmm. uh, this, this video podcast, to introduce the gospel and your truth to many who have never heard or never understood. And I pray, Lord, that there'd be a revival in our world today. God, that there would be um, a great awakening of sinners coming to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So uh, I guess uh, this will be... uh, I hope this, this will be you know uh we, we we will still have you know another episode for uh looking looking to to look forward to and uh please stay on the line and uh thank you so much for watching again uh my name is jordan from the christian worldview project and uh see you next time <laughs>